electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, to like or not to like, that is the question, at least on Instagram, the platform rolling out new features, Instagram head Adam Masseri. The hope was to depressurize Instagram a little bit, to allow people to focus a little bit less on how many likes they were getting and a little bit more on the people that inspire them and on connecting you know, with their friends. Billionaires, they don't pay a lot in taxes. The story everyone's talking about with writer Jesse Isinger of ProPublica. We think it is in the public interest to know that Jeff Bezos, the world's richest person, paid zero in income tax in two recent years. That Michael Bloomberg paid zero, Carl Icahn paid zero, Elon Musk in 2018, zero taxes. Those stories plus meme stocks on the move. They're also divorced from reality. I don't know what you do. And cha-ching Chipotle. Rising costs are hitting your takeout. If you get a burrito and it costs a little bit more, maybe you can feel good about it too. It's Wednesday, June 9th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one. Cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today, but we'll be watching the U.S. equity futures at this hour. First up today on the podcast, no, it's not AMC. It's not GameStop, even though that company does report earnings today. It's not even Wendy's. The latest meme stock, the new kid on the block, Clover Health. It's a Medicare insurance startup that went public through a SPAC, a special purchase acquisition company created by venture capitalist Chamath Palihapitiya. Here he is on Squawk Box in October 2020. Almost a third of all Americans have at least two chronic diseases like diabetes and heart disease. Now, you would think a market failure like this wouldn't be rewarded, but you would be wrong. And the great thing is we found this company, and this is why we are really excited after months of diligence and work to announce a merger between IPOC and Clover Health to take Clover Health public. Shares of Clover jumped more than 85% yesterday, even doubling at one point. It was one of the most mentioned stocks on Reddit's Wall Street Bets forum, which now has more than 10 million members. The rally could put a squeeze on short sellers, who lost an estimated $500 million on Clover yesterday. Now, Clover Health had received a notice from the SEC in February following a critical report from short seller Hindenburg Research that alleged the company's software prompts doctors to charge Medicare more than necessary. It said it would be cooperating with regulators, although shares of the company had been struggling, and more than 40% of the stock was sold short as of Tuesday. If you're Chamath Palihapitiya, do you sell the Clover shares? You can. Your expiration That's is what over. I was say. Would we know? When will we know if he sells it? I, I, know, that, he, I know that lockup expired. Just the lockup expired. I don't know how quickly you would know. I got to look. I, I assume he's on the board, and if he's on the board, You'd be an insider, so you'd see the sale. But I just don't know when you'd see it. You'd see it relatively quickly, I think, within 24 hours or 48 hours of the trade, right? So the question is, if you're him, do you sell? I mean, this goes to the whole idea of all of the... This is the Adam Aaron issue at AMC. This is the the issue with Clover, with all of these. I mean, but they're all so divorced from reality. I don't know what you do. 
I, I think it was important that Adam Aaron did not sell. You know, we I think it would be very hard for Adam Aaron to continue to raise money. Right. By the way, $16 million is what he put in originally. Right. A third of that was pledged to Credit Suisse for a loan. Right now, that stake, though, the $16 million is worth $682 million based on where the gains have gone. Um, and that's a gain of over 4,000 percent. Now, Clover may be a different story because Clover may not need to raise money. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think at the moment that Clover there's any anticipation that they're going to try to dilute the shareholders and raise cash because now they're desperate It wouldn't help money. Chamath's image if he were to sell at these levels oh, very Oh, I think quickly. that would also be a, a separate challenge, right. absolutely. The president ending a couple of weeks-long effort now to reach a deal with Senate Republicans on infrastructure and a call yesterday with the lead GOP negotiator, uh, which is Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia, President Biden making clear the divide was too large. The president shifting focus to a bipartisan group of centrist senators who've been working separately on an alternative compromise that will likely face some steeper odds of gaining Republican support. Interesting. The only bipartisan game in town these days is trying to go up against China. Right. And it was a vote of about 68 senators who, who they got to sign off on that, too. Still goes to the House. We'll see what happens. El Salvador has become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. 62 of 84 lawmakers approving the measure. Prices can now be displaced in Bitcoin, or displayed, I should say, and maybe potentially displaced in Bitcoin. <laughs> Tax payments can be made with the digital currency and exchanges in Bitcoin will not be subject to capital gains tax there. So a lot of interesting elements to this. The price of Bitcoin jumping shortly after the vote concluded. You're looking at Bitcoin now at about $34,000 after uh, briefly uh, popping down into the 32-ish range for a bit after uh, some of the questions about what the U.S. government had done to get some of that money back from the Colonial Pipeline, ransomware issues, mm -hmm. uh, and the like. You think this helps, or does anybody pay attention? I don't know if El Salvador is the credentializing country for this for this. Um, for this issue. Maybe yeah. if a G7 country does it, we'll... Be a different story. Yeah. If you care about Chipotle burritos, here's some news for you. Uh, your burrito's gonna cost more this month. That's what's gonna happen. The restaurant chain has hiked menu prices by roughly 4% to cover the cost of raising its workers' wages. In May, Chipotle announced it would raise hourly wages to reach an average of $15 per hour by the end of June. A company executive spoke at a conference yesterday hosted by Baird saying they'd pass the cost on to consumers. Chipotle's CFO said no more price increases are planned, but they're watching the rising cost of ingredients. We'll see about the prices of avocados. And uh, they said they'll, quote, see where that leads. So uh, if you get a burrito and it costs a little bit more, maybe... Maybe you can feel good about it too. You can say it's <laughs> no, no. You can say it costs some more, but I'm 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 You're paying, paying a higher wage. I'm but, paying but my it fair does share. Go to the point that look, it's just an example. When you raise wages, it yep. means the consumer is going to That's pay higher happens. prices. This is it, it. It works its way through the system. And by the way, you're not going to be able to go back and then lower prices down the road. Once it gets into the wages, yep. and then it rolls into pricing at the counter. That, that, these are permanent changes. They're not going to get rolled back. Permanent changes, they are. So the burrito costs more. It's not transitory. At it's least not transitory. This, but so much of it's not going to be transitory. Right, and that's the question for the Fed. At what right. point does the Fed say, okay, this is no longer transitory, or do we not hit that point? And that's, right. that's the bazillion-dollar question. The bazillion-dollar question.
Coming up on Squawk Pod, the creator economy. Instagram unveiling new ways for users to profit from their posts. Instagram's Adam Masseri. There's other things we can do in the space of allowing users to pay for gated content or tipping or digital goods. And then there's obviously RevShare as well, which we already experiment with in the video space. But if we're going to be the best home for creators online, we're going to have to offer a suite of these types of monetization products because there's a lot of competition and it's heating up fast. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Instagram is making a big play for influencers. Oh, you know you follow them. The Facebook-owned company kicked off its first-ever Creator Week, an invite-only camp, so to speak, for creators, marketers. And the company is rolling out new money-making features for users. It'll be easier to open shops to sell merchandise. And creators will be able to earn more money when people buy enough badges to support them during live videos. Also, Instagram will begin testing what's called a native affiliate tool. That will help people to earn commissions for purchases they inspire others to make. A lot going on on Instagram, and this all comes on the heels of Mark Zuckerberg's comments earlier this week about Facebook's relationship with creators on its platform. In a post, Zuckerberg wrote that the social media company will wait until at least 2023 to take a cut of revenue from creators who use Facebook for their businesses. And when they do take that cut, it'll be less than the 30% that Apple takes. Social media shots fired. Instagram head Adam Masseri joined our TV broadcast to discuss all of this. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin kicking off that interview. Adam, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you for waking up early uh, on, on the West Coast. Uh, it is a big week, and it does feel a bit to me, I don't know if it's a business model shift, but I'm actually curious when you think about this shift, how much of it you think ultimately will be a business model shift if we look at what Instagram looks like two or three years from now. Well, in general, I think... It's our job to try to identify how the world is changing and make sure we lean into those broader shifts. And one of the most important ones right now, we believe, is the shift in power from institutions to individuals. Sports is a good example. You know, Athletes are more relevant than teams for the first time in history. And we think creators, people whose personality is part of their brand and they make a living online, are a really important part of that shift. And people want to see the world through the eyes of those that they aspire to be like. They want to see what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. And so we want to lean into that shift as much as we can. And a key thing we need to do is help creators make a living. We aspire to have millions of creators make a living across all of our apps. And the announcements yesterday are just one step on that longer path. 
If we do have this conversation in two or three years from now, though, when you look at the revenue mix at a place like Instagram, how much of it do you think is going to be advertising driven uh, versus what I imagine you're hoping will be a commission oriented business where, you're, where you will capture a piece of what the creators are capturing? I think it'll be predominantly an advertising business. But to be clear, creators generate an immense amount of content, which then we advertise against. So it's actually very symbiotic for us. But there's got to be a range of different ways for creators to make a living. So what we announced yesterday was mostly in the space of commerce. So affiliate marketing, where creators can tag products that they love and then earn a commission. And then some new tools around creator shops, because a lot of creators sell their own merchandise. But there's other things we can do in the space of allowing users to pay for gated content or tipping or digital goods. And then there's obviously RevShare as well, which we already experiment with in the video space. But if we're going to be the best home for creators online, we're going to have to offer a suite of these types of monetization products because there's a lot of competition and it's heating up fast. Speak to the issue of how you're going to be splitting the revenues between the creators and Instagram itself and how that may differ from some of the other platforms. So we also announced this week that for all of the products where users actually pay creators directly, we're waiving all fees to the end of next year. We think it's an important um, thing to signal exactly what we're going to be taking and what creators are going to be able to make over the long run. We also signal that we're going to take less than the 30% that companies like Apple take for digital transactions um, because we just, quite frankly, think that's too high and not sustainable. Um, but we wanted to make sure we signal to the market where we're going and particularly to creators so that they can make educated decisions about where to place you know, their, or where to spend that time, I should say. How is that going to work on a platform like iOS? Meaning, is Apple going to still be taking a piece of that? It depends on the, spe the specific product. So it, when, it, when there are digital transactions that happen on iOS, Apple insists that they take 30% of that. There's a very few number of exceptions. Um, there, so for transactions that happen directly in iOS, we're going to have to abide by their rules. It's their playground. They set the rules. We have to abide by those. But in general, we're going to look for other ways to help creators make a living and facilitate transactions that happen in other places. So for instance, if we can help brands and creators vet each other and find each other, they can make those transactions happen offline. Right. Um, so there's, if you're for affiliate marketing, it's, it's real goods, not digital goods. And so they're the Apple store or the general app store um, takes don't apply. So we'll try to lean into the places where creators can actually make a stable living. Do you think the rules that Apple has around the tap store at 30%, that's fair? Should they be able to determine what that price is? I will say that they have an immense amount of power. They own one of the most important operating systems in the world, and they get to dictate those rules without or with very little oversight. Um, I think that it's hard to justify taking such a large cut of a transaction that you don't facilitate directly. But I don't get to set the rules. They do. The flip side, I'm sure somebody at Apple would say, should Facebook set the rules for the prices on advertising at Facebook? It's a reasonable retort, though I would say that our prices for advertising are auction-based. Um, so yes, there are ways that we are involved. But in general, we believe in free markets. We believe that allowing the demand to set the price. And as a result, you'll see our prices move, not radically, but move up and down based on our ability to generate more supply, but also our ability to deliver value for advertisers. And then at the end of the day, you get to decide what you're going to spend 
um, as an advertiser, and we think that's important. One of the big policy shifts uh, that you also made was this likes or not likes policy, which is to say that the user now can uh, keep the heart, and you can see the, the heart count on a, um, on a post, or you can remove it. Take us inside the discussion about that and also the issues around sort of online addiction, kids and comments and all of that. Yeah. So this was a project that was near and dear to my heart. Essentially, what we did was uh, test making the like counts private. So only you would know how many likes you got. And it was, you know, it took a long time because we got sidetracked by a lot of things in 2020, as most of our teams did. Actually, I think as most of the world did. The hope was to depressurize Instagram a little bit, to allow people to focus a little bit less on how many likes they were getting and a little bit more on the people that inspire them and on connecting you know, with their friends. In practice, even though it was a really big change, it actually changed much less than I thought it would about how people use Instagram or how people feel about Instagram. And the same goes for Facebook, because we did it on both Instagram and on Facebook. But people felt really strongly about it. It was really polarizing one way or the other. And it's important to me personally that people feel really good about the time that they spend on the platform on instagram and i think two big key pieces to that are to make sure that people understand how instagram works but to also give them control over the experience to give right. them choice and so this was a I, I think a really great ending for us which is it allowed us to give you the decision to shape instagram into what you think is best for you do you think it's a good idea for children to be on this and to build to build product for children yeah. So, I mean, I'm a father, so this is something I also take um, very seriously. But I think two things are true. One is that those under 13 today often want to be not only on Instagram, but on social media products more broadly. And two, for an age demographic where most people don't have IDs, it's incredibly difficult to actually verify age. We do a lot of work in the space for getting better, but it is a really tough ask. And so in that world, I have to believe that it's more responsible and better for everyone for parents to have some oversight and control over their kids' right. experiences online than for kids to just lie about their age and go rogue. And if I know my boys who are too young right now, but they are mischievous as can be, and I'm, I'm sure they're going to lie um, if we don't come up with an alternative solution. So we're going to get a lot of criticism for this, right. but I think it's our responsibility to do the right thing. Hey, Adam, we're, we're almost up against a hard break, but I, I do need to ask, there's meme stocks. A lot of people now using Instagram to promote stocks. And I wonder whether you think the SEC uh, should and could ultimately turn out to regulate social media sites like yours over these issues. So I don't know about weighing in on the regulation specifically, but I think this all has to do with that shift in power from institutions to individuals. It's pretty wild. Um, in this case, it's a little bit concerning for obvious reasons. I was actually gonna ask you the same question. Um, but I think that what we're seeing is not a trend that's gonna go away, it's gonna continue. and. I think it's something that we need to take seriously. Now, we haven't seen a lot of this activity on Instagram, um, but you know we're keeping a close eye on it. I think it's coming. If it's not there already, Adam, it's coming soon. Again, we appreciate we'll uh, seeing you this morning. Hope to see you live and in person, maybe on a live Instagram at some point. Uh, talk to you Sounds very, great. very soon. Absolutely. Such Thank you. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, a major story from ProPublica, billionaires keeping their billions. Senior reporter Jesse Isinger on the taxes paid, or not, by the wealthiest Americans. Most of us are in the tax system and we get salaries and we get taxes extracted from our salary. The ultra wealthy are completely outside of the system. The question is whether that system is working. We'll be right back. 
Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on-brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Stand back, you buy. You're listening three, to Squawk Pod. Two, one, cure, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is out today. The IRS here in the United States is reportedly investigating the release of tax information for a number of wealthy Americans. This move comes after ProPublica published details about the apparent income and tax payments by business leaders, including Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and about 22 other people. I think it was the 25 richest Americans yep. that they focused on. Taxpayer information is confidential, and there are potential criminal penalties for IRS employees or others who release such information. I have so many mixed views about this piece because, first of all, it is 100% illegal, we should just say, not for ProPublica to publish the, the information, but private citizens not elected officials or people even looking to run for office, because right. we had big debates over President Trump's tax returns. Private citizens, the idea that you could, that, that your tax information or my tax information or anybody's tax, tax information would be publicly disclosed is one of the last things in America that's actually been protected. Right, it undermines the, the credibility of the system to see something like this. I thought what was weird about it is they say they don't know where they got right. the information, which how do you make sure that it, it's actually well, it the right information? Well, it looks like they then went, look, there are elements of it that were clearly, I would argue, in the public interest to know. Mm -hmm. It was revelatory insofar as there was a year in which Jeff Bezos not only didn't pay taxes, but you know, got a four thousand dollar child, child tax, tax credit, credit. Yeah, which was fascinating and interesting. Um, I think there was a little, a little bit aggressive. of cherry picking. <laughs> I think there was a little bit of cherry picking of information because you saw years that they weren't paying, but you didn't necessarily see the what they were paying in the other years. And I think there was a larger issue, which is that they spent a lot of time comparing the tax bill with their overall tax wealth, right. paper-based wealth, not necessarily realized gains. Now, part of what I think the piece was trying to suggest is that there should be a larger conversation about overall wealth versus, versus tax bills as opposed to realize, basically realized gains versus unrealized gains. But I think there's, again, that's a larger debate, too. Well, and that's a conversation you and I were having yes. off air yesterday, which that strikes me. If you are not paying a minimum tax, and again, an AMT, a real AMT, right. that, that says you're going to make sure that you pay at least this much of your income, that's different from a wealth tax, which looks right. at these unrealized gains and says, even if you haven't cashed out any of your stock, even if you haven't paid dividends or any of those things, I think that's a slightly different story, but you're right. right. The two are kind of melded very closely together. In this and story. the other thing that it brought up was there are some people at that level who are able to live off of the unrealized gains yeah. by effectively taking by loans against, against them. Yeah. So the Elon Musk's of the world, yeah. it looked like, as if at one point, maybe Carl Icahn at one point uh, was doing this, um, potentially Larry Ellison and others, mm -hmm. who take enormous loans against that and then effectively don't pay taxes for right. years and then are able to do that. Um, I think there's a lot of ways to fix the system, yeah. but I'm not sure I'm going after, I'm not sure I'm upset with people who are not paying 
off of unrealized gains because nobody's asking them to pay up for, right. uh, against unrealized gains. Anyway, joining us right now, ProPublica senior reporter and editor Jesse Eisinger. Jesse, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, it is the story that everybody is talking about, and we want to talk about it with you on so many different levels. Um, I want to start the conversation, if we could, just just going into some of the detail about some of the individuals and what you what you reported. People like Jeff Bezos claiming a four thousand dollar tax credit for his children in 2011 uh, after reporting that uh, he'd, he'd, he had no income uh, that year. Warren Buffett paid uh, you report under twenty four million dollars in taxes between 2014 and 2018. Uh, Mike Bloomberg paying seventy million dollars in tax in 2018, despite as you said, reporting a $1.9 billion in net income. Uh, Carl Icahn and Elon Musk clearly uh, taking out loans against uh, stock collateral. Uh, again, that's, that, that, that prevents creating additional income. Uh, George Soros had no federal income so there's, uh, for a couple of years, between 2016 and 2018. So there's a lot that, that is revelatory in this. My question to you is, how do you think that they're doing it? And one of the things that you do in the story is compare how much money they paid in taxes to their overall wealth or their gain in wealth during those periods. And to me, that piece of it, uh, I want to get to in a second, but I, but I wanted to spend some time thinking about how, how and why and whether you think it's legal what they're doing. Sure. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Always great to be back on Squawk Box. So um, let's just situate this for a second. If uh, you want to talk about effective tax rates, um, the tax rates on billionaires, we have a companion piece to the main piece. It shows that billionaires pay effective tax rates that are lower not only than the 0.01%, but also lower than someone making $45,000 a year, about 15%, 16% in the last, you know, 2014 to 2018. That's effective tax rates on income. We don't think that's the most meaningful way to talk about the ultra wealthy because they're really not in the tax system. I and many of the viewers, well, maybe not many of the viewers on CNBC, maybe not you, but most of us are in the tax system and we get salaries and we get taxes extracted from our salary. The ultra wealthy are completely outside of the system and their wealth and all of the power and all of the means that their wealth confers is completely almost entirely outside of the system. And the question is whether that system is working. So the question, though, that I'd ask you is, to me, there's the issue of realized gains and unrealized gains. And the thing that you do that is interesting, uh, though uh, there's been a, a number of critics of it, is the idea of comparing it to unrealized gains. Steve Ratner, uh, who I should say oversees uh, and, and represents the money of Michael Bloomberg, who's mentioned the piece, uh, called the piece financial gibberish. Mm. Oh, uh, Steve Ratner. <laughs> uh, but that's, you know, the funny thing is that, first of all, there's a whole economic concept about unrealized gains being income. It goes back to the 1920s. But irrespective of that, um, what's happening is with the super wealthy is that their wealth is growing and that is allowing them to have the means to do an enormous amount of spending and keep control of the company. So how do they spend if they don't realize? Well, they borrow against the wealth. So Elon Musk pledges his shares and borrows billions, tens of billions of dollars. Carl Icahn borrows billions of dollars. Larry Ellison had a $10 billion credit line. 
So what's happening when they borrow is that they're not selling, they're not taking gains, they're not paying any taxes, and they're living uh, lavishly. In the case of Carl Icahn, we're all subsidizing the leverage that he uses to boost his returns. So is that a system that's effective? Is that a system that's fair? Are they paying their fair share? We think that this is the right measure. I don't think it's gibberish at all. I don't think Haig Simons in the 1920s thought it was gibberish to measure income this way. It's a very carefully done analysis that Look, you can I, I agree with you in that there's a, there's a very fair question to be asked about whether we should be incentivizing effectively the interest expense of loans to be used in this way at this level. I, I've asked questions about when it comes to philanthropy um, at that level, uh, what the kinds of deductions that should, should turn out to be and whether, we, whether and how you can deal with the step up and basis issue and eliminating that. Uh, at death so that you can capture all of this. So uh, we're, exactly. we're not in disagreement about There are elements of this, I think, that uh, you and I are completely in agreement about. Let me ask you a very different question, though, which is there's a big question right now about this data itself, which is to say that historically private actors, uh, private citizens, their tax information has been kept private. That's different uh, than elected officials or even private citizens that are running for elected office. Um, do you think that that data should be private? Well, we don't think that some of the data should be private. We published it. Um, we are being careful, responsible stewards of this information, and we're only putting it through a prism of what, what is in the public interest. And we think it is in the public interest to know that Jeff Bezos, the world's richest person, paid zero in income tax in two recent years, that Michael Bloomberg paid zero, Carl Icahn paid zero, Elon Musk in 2018, zero taxes. I, I defy anyone, one, to say, like, this is old news and we're all jaded and the rich can avoid taxes. I think no one would have thought that this was the case until yesterday when we published it. Maybe, you know, that real estate moguls like Donald Trump or Jared Kushner might pay zero, but not these guys. So we think it's in the public interest. We were very careful. We verified all the information. The most important aspect of this to us is the information comes and we put it through a prism. Is it verified? Is it true? Is it newsworthy? And we thought it passed that. Every source has bias. I mean, I'm familiar with cable stations that have money managers on who talk about stocks that they own. And I think that they can have valid points. Uh, every source in every interaction for every journalist has an agenda, has a bias. We put it all through the prism of whether it's true and whether it's newsworthy. Do you believe uh, that the government should pursue an investigation about the leak? Oh, I'm not going to comment on that. That's not my business. Um, and I don't opine on that. We think uh, what we're going to write all year will pass the test of being in the public interest. And we so think this story passed the test of being in the public interest. Let's talk about that because you do plan to publish more stories. What are you hoping to find, to look at? I imagine you've seen some of this. I'm very interested, by the way, in the, what I call the apples to apples comparison, which is to try to understand the deductions that these people are taking to, to effectively show a loss, um, and whether that's charitable contributions, whether that's uh, an interest deduction. By the way, what is the, do you know, what is the maximum amount you can deduct from your taxes uh, when it comes to interest expense? 
Uh, well, interest expense, you can uh, wipe out your uh, entire income. That's what Carl Icahn did. With He wiped out half a billion dollars in 2016, 2017 with interest expense. Um, charitable deductions, there's a uh, limit on that. Um, so we we're, your audience would be very helpful for this. We are uh, looking for tips and help to uh, analyze this information. We have an enormous number of stories we're gonna do. Um, they're all gonna be carefully done and they're gonna show the techniques that uh, the ultra wealthy use to manufacture losses. Sometimes they're paper losses. Um, we're gonna show a lot of deductions. We're gonna show interesting stories about credits. We also have audit records. So we're gonna uh, try to analyze what the audits of the ultra-wealthy have been and whether uh, the IRS is really pursuing the ultra-wealthy when they're aggressive. Um, we hey, welcome Jesse. help from reporters, I, uh, from viewers like, you know, and CNBC. Jesse, just a quick question. I, 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 I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think that there's anything illegal that anyone's done. I, are, are you trying to embarrass them for, for what they've done or are you trying to change the laws? Uh, well, uh, we only highlighted legal behavior in this story. That's absolutely right. We wanted to hire the system. It's not about embarrassing individuals, and it's certainly not about a policy uh, advocacy. We're not, we're just journalists. Uh, you know, you've known me for 20 years now. I'm just a journalist. I'm not an advocate. Um, and I'm not particularly, uh, you know, advocating for one policy or another. What we thought was valid and newsworthy was to say, you know, all of the information right. we think from the zero paying in taxes to the fact that these guys are effectively outside of the system, right. we believe that that is in the public and newsworthy, public yes, interest. We want to thank you for coming on this morning. We hope to have you back. Uh, whether people like it or not, this is going to have a huge impact, I would argue, uh, on the tax around uh, wealth taxes and the like over the next year. And we look forward to seeing the next dump of stories that come our way. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me, guys. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Tell a friend to listen to Squawk Pod. Sharing is caring. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.